0: Back to the Midnight Myth, everybody's favorite pop culture podcast where we analyze and inform you on the history, mythology, and philosophy that bubbles up into our popular storytelling. I don't know if you can tell friends on the internet, but I am very excited to be back with another episode this week. I'm really enthusiastic about this subject. We are going to be discussing a brand new show that just debuted on Amazon Prime. I think it's more of a one-shot mini-series. I don't know if it'll be a longer serialized uh show, but uh, we'll see what happens, called Good Omens, based off of the book written by Neil Gaiman and Terry Pratchett of the same name. And we're going to be diving deep 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 into the end times.
1: This is a uh, a television series that is either thirty years or six thousand years in the making, depending on how you look at it. The novel by Neil Gaiman and Sir Terry Pratchett came out thirty years ago. And uh, this collaboration was so special to have these two great gods of the fantasy genre and uh, who have such I- incredible senses of humor come together. Neil Gaiman describes the collaboration as Michelangelo asking if you want to help him paint a ceiling. So uh, I'm so grateful that this story exists and that it was finally made into a television series, which I know was a dying wish of Terry Pratchett as well. So before we go anywhere, I just wanna dedicate this episode and this discussion to the memory of Sir Terry Pratchett, uh, who passed away in 2015 from complications from Alzheimer's. Uh, And I just want to throw all the respect and love in the world on what he was able to do for the fantasy genre and all of the contributions that he made to literature over the years and over a wonderful career.
0: Well said. So before we dive into this episode, there are a few large caveats. One, if you haven't seen the show, um, I would highly recommend watching the show before listening to this podcast, because uh, this will be a no-holds-barred, spoiler-filled discussion on the themes of the season one of Good Omens. Um, and two, I hi- if you haven't seen it yet, highly recommend it. It is a sheer delight. Very rarely do we watch a show and instantly feel like we have to talk about it. Most of the time we let things ruminate. We like to let it sit there. We like to really reflect on it, maybe watch it a bunch of times. As soon as we were done with Good Omens, Laurel and I looked at each other and we're like, we're podcasting about this ASAP.
1: Yeah, absolutely.
0: And other caveat here, we are going to be in part, discussing themes related to the Book of Revelations and the Christian religion. I myself am not a Christian. I am not even really a religious person at all. I describe myself as an atheist with the heart of a spiritual person. That's a weird combination because life is weird. That being said, we're going to look at the Book of Revelations from a historical, from a mythological, and a philosophical lens not from a literal lens. This isn't done to tell anyone that believes that the book of Revelations is gospel. Well, it's literally in the gospel, but if it uh, it's not done to offend or to injure or to belittle anyone's beliefs. But this is the lens that we take to all literature. And so the book of Revelations will be no different.
1: I appreciate that disclaimer. Thank you.
0: And with that being said, I think I'm ready to roll up my sleeves and get to work here.
1: Amazing. So before we get started, make sure if you want to get in touch with us, you hit us up on social media. We're on Twitter at the Midnight Myth. We're on Instagram at Midnight Myth Podcast, and we're on Facebook. You can also head over to our website for more information and more content. That's www.midnightmyth.com. What are you going to find there? You're going to find blogs. You're going to find uh, some of our sources and inspiration for our episodes. You're going to find a link to our merch store where you can get Midnight Myth tees, where you can get sweatshirts, where you can get mugs. Uh, you're also going to learn more about our Wheel of Caw side podcast about the Dark Tower, one of the coolest things we have going for us these days. And the last thing you'll find there is a link to our Patreon page. So if you've been looking for a way to support the podcast for a small monthly donation, anywhere as low as $1 a month, $5 a month, and whatever you can spare, you can get extra content. That'll be discounts on merch or uh, extra episodes and additional stuff as you go. So if you want to help us out, make sure we can keep making The Midnight Myth. Definitely consider supporting us on Patreon, buying some merch, or just visiting our website and letting us know how you feel giving us your feedback.
0: And just a huge podcast digital hug to our current Patreon subscribers. Thank you. Money is a precious resource. And the fact that you've given any of yours to us to create this content is just absolutely amazing. So- Thank you from the bottom of my heart. Bless you. And with that being said, let us talk about Good Omens. The show just came out. It is very fresh in my mind. It's fresh in everyone's mind. But we'll do just the most basic of basics of recaps. Sure. The show takes place and follows the lives of one angel named Aziraphale and his best friend and counterpart, the demon Crowley. They are working together to try to thwart the coming of the Antichrist, who will usher in the end times and bring about the end of the world with a final confrontation between the forces of heaven versus the forces of hell. This goes horribly wrong in delightful and funny ways. There are lots of other interesting side characters, including um, a witch hunter, a a witch hunter and a a witch? witch who fall in love. And it's just an absolute pure delight. You have everything from the demon Beelzebub to the archangel Gabriel to the voice of God narrating the entire story. But the crux of it is, is that there is a angel and a demon who over the years, through their blessings and curses on planet Earth, have developed at first a sort of functional relationship where they kind of cover for each other with their quote unquote head offices with heaven and hell when they feel like slacking off a little bit. And then based off of that, uh, relationship have become the best of friends and they realize that they actually like humans and they like living on the world and they don't want the world to end. Then there is the antichrist Adam who that they are trying to thwart him coming into his full powers. Yeah. Wonderful. And they successfully do thwart the apocalypse.
1: They sure do.
0: They do. Al, at the very end, they get together. Turns out Adam just becomes a regular kid, and he uses his magical powers of the Antichrist to deny that Satan was his father, and it kind of magically wipes out all of the bringing about of the end times, and life on Earth goes on peacefully, and Fell, and Crowley get to continue to be friends.
1: And a nightingale sings in Barclay Square.
0: But nobody hears it.
1: That's a wonderful recap. Thank you for doing that.
0: Why, thank you for uh, allowing me the time to do it. Let's talk a little analysis here. Yeah, Where would you like to begin, Laurel? Uh,
1: Right out of the gate, uh, I just want to share some of my impressions from the series uh, and and what it kind of left on me, because I did read the novel a couple of years ago, and I reread it this week just to get ready for this podcast, uh, and I felt so good about this adaptation in large part because of the contributions of Neil Gaiman, who was showrunning and uh, and created the script for it and wanted to do justice by his collaboration with uh, with Terry Pratchett. Um, but there was something so refreshing about having this story right now. This feels like the apocalypse we needed right now.
0: I know exactly what you mean. And I'm
1: thinking about this, especially with regard to Game of Thrones ending a couple of uh, weeks ago in regards to uh, the kind of television that you and I are currently watching, uh, the sort of the darkness and the grimness of human nature that is portrayed in so much of popular culture, which I do not think is a bad thing. I think it's really interesting and really um, uh, elevating uh, of of our critical thinking. But there is something so refreshing about uh, 30 years after the novel came out, seeing an adaptation of Good Omens, which is a fundamentally optimistic piece of storytelling about human nature. And that's kind of my way in tonight is after so much cynicism, after so much everything we do just winds up turning things wrong, after everything that's going on in the world right now and how, how grim I feel about the state of where we are leaving our earth, it's nice to see a story that confronts those things head on, says we are sending the world to hell in a handbasket, but there is something good and worthwhile and worth saving and worth preserving about humanity. And that's just kind of where I want to enter, enter this tonight. It's just a really positive and optimistic thing that gives us the feeling that we can continue and we can
0: go on. Absolutely. I think that that will segue into what I believe are the two most resounding huge themes that kind of scream out of the show to me. And theme number one is friendship. And I think that's the most amazing theme of the show. That's what it's really about. It's about the ability for two people who should be enemies, who should be trying to thwart and stop each other, finding commonality and becoming friends and using that friendship to really fall in love with the world based upon the fact that they're friends. They're not really doing their jobs of cursing and blessing, which means They kind of get to hang out and really enjoy humanity. They really enjoy being alive. They enjoy people. They enjoy being angels and demons, certainly, but they don't want to return to either hell or heaven for eternity. There's a really funny scene in the pilot where the demon Crowley's just like, so how many composers do you have? Yeah. Well, we've got Mozart. We've got all the box. Yeah. We've got all of the great composers. And Aziraphale looks and goes, well, they've already written their music. He's like, yeah, you're not going to hear it in heaven, though.
1: Yeah. And hell has Sondheim, too. So all they really have in heaven are, uh, you know, sort of heavenly melodies and harmonies, celestial harmonies, he says, and the sound of music, which the Almighty is a big fan of. Right. Uh, And I don't think I can imagine an eternity of the sound of music, That'd
0: be pretty rough. Yeah, <laughs> that sounds like hell to me. Yeah, but there's this a cosmological upending of what we think of as heaven as pure bliss, and it's just like, well, actual happiness can be found in the mundane, raw world. We see the angel Gabriel refuse to have a bite of sushi or any tea because he's like, I'm not polluting my celestial body with that. Whereas Zirafel loves to dine into the delicacies of humanity linking him to the people because he's not going around just following orders, which is I think the second major theme of the show, which is choice, the capacity for individuals to choose to make their own destiny. You are not bound by any great divine hierarchy. God has put free will into the universe and even the agents, angels and demons, they can choose to become friends They can choose to ignore orders. The Antichrist can choose to end the world or choose not to. The Antichrist can choose to disown Satan and undo all of the evil that the Antichrist set in motion. That the Armageddon is a choice. And what stops it? Friends. And what inspires the Antichrist to not go through and end the world and become the the evil king he was meant to be? It's because his friends are mad at him. Yeah. You know, like, and yeah. he's just like, shit, I'm being a dick to my friends. Friendship is what saves the universe and friendship only exists because we choose our friends. Yeah. So friendship and choice to me are the two big themes coming out of it. And I totally agree with what you're saying. That is a fundamentally optimistic way to look at the world. You choose your friends. And based upon that, loving another who is not your kin just because you choose to love them is a, has enough power in it to thwart the apocalypse.
1: Yeah, I think that's wonderful. And I think you're spot on uh, about friendship and the question of free will being central to this story. I think the show very smartly uh, grounds its narrative in the emotional center and the emotional heart of the relationship between Crowley and Aziraphale, uh, going so far as to insert a 30-minute cold open in, I think, episode three that shows them uh, meeting time and again serendipitously on the fields of different uh, historical landscapes in the Roman Empire or in the French Revolution or uh, at the castle of Camelot. Uh, and there is just a, a an intense chemistry between these two performers, between David Tennant and uh, Michael Sheen, who really just between the two of them hold this entire thing together with the kind of love that they project for one another in the world. But the term that keeps being used for them is going native. Uh, Crowley and Aziraphale have, quote unquote, gone native. And I think that those themes of friendship and free will come together very much in the idea of worldliness, of, uh, of humanism, of viewing uh, things that are earthly as not sinful necessarily, as not uh, agents of temptation, uh, but as the true and great pleasures of the universe, whether that's dancing, whether that's sushi, whether that's answering machines or driving your favorite car, both of them have grown these attachments to things that are uh, created by individual human will. They've both grown these worldly attachments and in so much religious scripture, worldliness is condemned. Uh, You want to strive for, uh, heavenliness, you want to strive for your life to be more godlike, more ascetic, uh, more immaculate so that you can achieve the great pleasures of heaven. But between the two of them, especially for Aziraphale, coming to terms with the fact that the worldly pleasures, the things that you get after you take the bite of the apple, things that you get after you choose to not stay in the garden, are the things that are worth living for.
0: All right, so allow me to pivot I had a a fundamental question that I wanted to answer in preparation for this podcast that I focused all of my research on this podcast, and I wanted to filter everything through this. Okay. What's the deal with humans and the end of the world?
1: Right? What's the deal with Armageddon?
0: Yes. Why? Why the end of the world? Why do we fantasize about it? Why do we prophesize about it? Why do we write about it? If one just looks at the amount of movies where they are either about the apocalypse or post-apocalyptic, there is a huge, huge market in terms of our uh, media appetites and film. Yeah. There's plenty of TV shows. One could say the entire zombie genre is part of the post-apocalyptic genre or post-apocalyptic narratives. I found a sociologist by the name of Adam Pulsami. I said that so horribly wrong. He had a theory that he studied post-apocalyptic literature of the last 10 years, which would include film and television and books, and came up with the idea that in a post-apocalyptic narrative, they don't even give reasons for the apocalypse. It's just assumed the apocalypse happened. People have been so baked into the idea of the apocalypse that when you're doing a narrative about the apocalypse you don't really need to explain why the or how the apocalypse happened because people are like oh yeah of course the world ended
1: yeah that's really interesting that it's certainly not the case in every single uh you know instance of a, an apocalypse narrative sure. but but certainly you can think about uh zombie movies and and so on and so forth as like, yep, this is the wasteland that we live in. We may have a flashback or two to show you what things were like before, but it's just the given circumstances that the world ended because that's what worlds do.
0: Consider Interstellar, for example. Yeah. They don't really say what happened. Everyone it presumably it's about global warming. But you, they never actually say that specifically. Yeah. The world's ended. There's no more food. Everyone's going to die. We accept that as a given. And that's the start of the narrative. Yeah. Well, so there's a few connecting threads here. I found in my research that, generally speaking, nearly every culture, religion, or mythological system has some form of an apocalyptic narrative it's one of the few most universal aspects of how humans have interacted with each other on either a ritualistic or mythological um, level. Um, there are two fundamental types of apocalypses. So one is a cyclical apocalypse. The other is a linear apocalypse. There are, And there are differences between the two. A linear apocalypse takes all of human history from the beginning or all of the world's history from the beginning to one straight line where it ends. Once it ends, that's it, over, apocalypse. Christianity has a linear view of the apocalypse. Once the book of, the prophecies of Book of Revelations come to be, the world ends, the good souls are in heaven, and hell is defeated. Then there's cyclical. Cyclical has apocalypses that happen and that will constantly re-happen. For example, Hinduism. In Hinduism, we are in the fourth age. There have been three worlds before ours. Each has had an apocalypse which has ended. And in the ending, a new world is born out of the old. So it is a constant cycle that is continuing and repeating. And in Hinduism, we are now living in the fourth iteration of the world on the verge to our next apocalypse. And in Hinduism, these happen approximately once every 40 million or four million years, pardon me. Okay, great. So every 4 million years, the god Vishnu will come yeah. and will usher in the end of that world and bring the good people to the next. So why, why apocalypses? Um, there's a few other things, too. You mentioned terms like Armageddon. Those refer to specific parts of Revelations. Yeah. So in the book of Revelations, there are a few words that have come to genuinely mean the entire book, but they actually refer to specific events. So Armageddon is the battle between the second coming of Christ and the Antichrist. That is the battle in which the four horsemen of the apocalypse get unleashed. Fun fact, no one really knows who the four horsemen of the apocalypse are and what they come to represent, because it's not specifically said in Revelations. The show has them as death, famine, pollution, and war. War, sorry. Yeah, blanking on it.
1: And they are motorcycle riders. And then Armageddon um, is the Greek name for the fields of Megiddo, which is the battlefield on which this battle is uh, supposed to be fought, at least according to the book of Revelation. But then Armageddon itself has come to uh, be synonymous with apocalypse.
0: Correct. It means the end of the world, but it specifically is referring to that battle. Right. That book of Revelation prophesizes that Jesus will win. All of the good souls get to live without death, pain, fear. Those are all eradicated from existence. The world is over. All of the bad souls are defeated. And the forces of hell are ultimately destroyed as well in this battle. Um, another thing, the rapture. The rapture is the actual calling of all of the good souls that Jesus will then usher into heaven. So that is the action by which Jesus brings the good souls and says, you've been good Christians this whole time, come with us to heaven, and takes their spirits to heaven during the events of the apocalypse, which has also come mm-hmm. to just genuinely people say, oh, it's the rapture. Well, that specifically refers to that. Absolutely. Other fun things. No one really knows when the book of Revelation was written or by who. There are two competing theories— one is that John the Apostle wrote it because right. the writer of Revelations calls himself John.
1: Yeah, it's sometimes called the Revelation to John.
0: Correct. Because um, God reveals this yeah. to John. The other is another John called John the Presbyter. I'm probably not saying that word right. Um, but there are two, no one really knows which John, and it could be, those also could be inaccurate. And the two competing theories was that uh, when it was written, that it was either written during the time of Nero in the Roman Empire or during the reign of Domitian, Um, Nero being the last of the Julian-Claudian dynasty, Domitian being the last of the Flavian dynasty. So there's a period swing of about, you know, 50, 60 years there where it could have been written. But one thing that is true, whether it is during Nero's time or Domitian's time, it was written during a period of very intense Christian persecution.
1: Okay, yeah.
0: The Romans were trying to eradicate the Christians. The Christian uh, religion was illegal. It was illegal on two bases. Basis one, that at this point in time, the Roman state official state religion worshiped the emperor as a god and the previous emperors as gods. The Christians refuted that because Jesus was their god. So they worshiped Jesus as the Lord and not the, the Roman emperors. So that was a threat to the legitimacy of the power of the empire. And two, there was a charge of cannibalism against the Christians. They oh, were, wow. They were believed because the taking of the Eucharist, which is imbibing the flesh and blood of Christ, yeah. symbolically or literally, depending upon your your particular religious beliefs, um, the Romans thought they were actually eating live humans. Or
1: at least use that as propaganda.
0: And they, they legitimately believed they were wow. cannibals. Wow! 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 So, for those two reasons, Christianity was seen as a as a, both a an, an immoral religion and B, a a threat to the power of the Roman Emperor. Sure. So they were intensely, and when I say intensely, I mean intensely being persecuted. They were fed alive to lions. They were burned at the stake. Nero famously lit a bunch of Christians on fire at a party and used that as the light for the party during night.
1: Jesus Christ. Yes.
0: Yes. (laughs) Wow. It's like, hey, Roman aristocrats, let's all hang out. Oh, it's getting dark. We'll light these Christians on fire. Oh my God. Yes. Quite famous. Yeah. Okay. Wow. And the reason why I say that is because if we want to understand Revelations as a historical text, it needs to be put into its context. To the Christians at the time, they believed, well, let me back up here. Central in most mythological or religious end times is the idea that humans are acting in an immoral way out of whack with the divine order of their god or gods and based upon that displeasure from their failings morally the apocalypse is then bred and that is what brings it apart
1: yeah. So as you were saying that, as you were providing that context, the historical context to when the book of Revelation was was probably written, that was really helpful for me in kind of understanding the key to like, what's the deal with all of this apocalypse literature? Because if they were undergoing major persecution at this time and felt like they were being stamped out or felt like the powers that be were attempting to end their world, then that kind of anxiety uh it, it is natural that it that it breeds and that feels very close to why we may continue to uh tell these kinds of stories because we are so concerned with the patterns that we see changing in our in our universe that well it must be the end times
0: the most powerful empire in the history of humanity the one that had the most stable government the one that had conquered the largest amount of territory which it held for the largest amount of time, it wasn't the biggest land-owning empire of the ancient world, but it was the most stable for the size, was in the hands of pagans who were killing Christians as many as they could find and as cruelly as they could to try to deter others from joining their religion. If you're a Christian in this time and you believe there is a direct link between the moral behavior of most people and the propensity and possibility For the world to end, you're like, well, this is it. This is it. This is all we got. Christ came, gave us the good word, and nobody is listening. We are worse off morally than we've ever been. The entire government of the world is trying to destroy the word of Christ. Obviously, this is the end. All all us few Christians that are left are going to get to go to heaven, and everyone else is going to perish in their sin. So it is a world ripe for the understanding of the context of the apocalypse. Absolutely. few you know other just general things about apocalyptics and apocalypses that I think are worth understanding and discussing. One is the flood. The flood is a very, very common apocalyptic story.
1: Across multiple cultures the all mo- over the world, right? The,
0: the most famous flood now is Noah and Noah's flood. However, the first written form of the flood was about 2,000 years before there was ever an Old Testament ever written in ancient Assyrian on a cuneiform tablet. Cuneiform is a form of ancient writing, for those that don't know, that puts the writing onto clays. And it talks about a great flood. The flood and the flood narrative is all about the God, God, or gods having created humans are really pissed off at them. They're overbreeding, they're not praying, they're not moral. Hence, they decide to wipe them out with a flood. Floods exist also in the cosmology of ancient Greek mythology. In ancient Greek mythology, there are certain ages, one of which is the Bronze Age. So there's the Gold Age, the Silver Age, the Bronze Age, the Age of Heroes, and then the Iron Age.
1: Just getting worse and worse. <laughs> those are those
0: are all the ages. Yeah. The Bronze Age is when Zeus was pissed off at all the humans and killed them all with the flood which brought about the um, age of heroes, which is the age of Heracles and Perseus and all of that. Very cool. Ancient Hinduism has a flood narrative. It's everywhere. Yeah. The flood is a central part. Now in most mythological systems, not religious systems, and the distinction would be a religious system has a book that's written down that says, this is how we all collectively worship and practice where a mythological system has stories which are passed typically verbally. Sometimes they can be written down and there's no set orthodoxy in how you worship or how you pray or who you pray to. Most mythological systems have cyclical apocalypses. They don't have linear. And in most mythological systems, the apocalypse already happened. The flood was the apocalypse and there's mm. no future end. Mm. The apocalypse happened It flooded. Everybody died. The gods agreed to never do it again. Let's all worship them, thank and be good. So they'll never repeat this, but they promised as long as we're good, this won't happen again. Christianity is unique in that it has the past apocalypse of the flood, but also a future apocalypse in revelations.
1: Yeah. I was just going to ask about this as you were saying that I was like, yeah, to bringing this back to good omens, we obviously saw Crowley and Aziraphale present before the flood, both kind of feeling sort of anxious about it. Like, does the Almighty really need to do this? Does, does the Almighty really need to test them to the brink of destruction? Um, but then knowing that there is, uh, you know, a continuation of the ineffable plan toward Armageddon uh, is just a really interesting and, and unique fact about the the uh, theology of Christianity.
0: Definitely. Um, I found in my research, I found that, oh my God, I'm blanking on this website. It was a really awesome website that broke down different chapters of the Bible. It was a Christian website into really interesting, this is what people think, really good summary, and I meant to write it down and I didn't, so I'm an asshole. But I found four different interpretations, genuinely speaking, of revelations that exist among theologians. The first is the pre-tourists, and I might not be saying that right. They understand Revelations as exclusively in its first century setting. Most of the events of Revelations to them have already happened, right? Oh, wow, okay. They've already occurred, most of them. They're just waiting for that last final step for the Antichrist and Jesus to actually battle. Then there is the uh, historists. that take it as describing the long chain of events. Okay. So every single one of those things, it's a long change or a historical account of human history. There's the futurists who say none of these events have happened. They're all going to be happening in the future. And then the idealists who view it as symbolic pictures of timeless truths over the, of the victory of good over evil that read it symbolically and not literally. And those are the four general interpretations of Revelations out there.
1: That's wonderful. I'm really glad that you brought that in because I've been thinking about Good Omens and its relationship to prophecy uh, because we we started out by talking about how free will and choice are a major theme of this, uh, of this novel and of this TV series. And it absolutely is, but we also have a wrench in that, which is that we have a very nice and accurate set of prophecies by uh, a witch from the 18th century named Agnes Nutter who has created this set of like extraordinarily specific and granular prophecies that once you look back at them came true uh, 100% of the time. Uh, the big one that keeps getting pointed to within the television series is uh, in the year 1984, an apple will rise that no man can eat, according to Master Jobus. So it's very clearly pointing out that Steve Jobs is going to create Apple computer and it's going to blow up. The problem with the prophecies though is that they only really make sense after the fact because they're written by somebody 300 years ago who had no idea what the world of the future was going to look like and it was left up to her descendants uh, ending with anathema device, who is is now the the scion of this line, trying to interpret them uh, as she goes. And so there's an interesting relationship to how we interpret these uh, revelations or these prophecies that we have been handed. Uh, Agnes Nutter sort of standing in for a kind of Nostradamus, a kind of comic Nostradamus, and realizing that we can only truly interpret uh, the accuracy of prophecies after the fact. So I love that you delineate those uh, people who think that some of the things of the book of Revelation have already happened and that we're on this path, and some who think, it's all in the future, or it's all symbolic. At the end of the day, according to Good Omens, whether or not the prophecies come true, the actual message I think that's being peddled here is like, what are you going to do with it? What are you going to do with your life? And at the end of the story, Anathema burns the next book of prophecies where the saga continues because it's more important to her to feel like she is in charge of her own actions, to feel like she is motivated by something other than a piece of paper.
0: Well, she doesn't want to live her life. As a
1: professional descendant. Yeah, exactly. She
0: wants to be a person, so she chooses to burn that book of prophecies and not know the future. Yes. So do you mind if I rewind a little bit? Absolutely. I just wanted to share
1: that little uh, little piece because that set me off.
0: Amazing because I th- I still don't know if I'm closer to the answer of my question it's of fine, why yeah. the apocalypse. Yeah. So the other the one other aspect about general apocalypse myths and religious systems is that some also culminate in a battle. For example, in the Norse in Ragnarok, Loki leads the giants and all of the enemies of the Vanir and the Asir or the Asir, pardon me, the forces of Asgard. Otherwise, in a glorious battle. And then in it, the last two gods alive, Hemdall and Loki, battle to the death. And Loki thinks that he has finally ended the world. And Hemdal sees two humans are still alive mm, yeah. and that it will actually continue. It's just the end of this era. Um, and then in Christianity, there is the battle between Jesus, the four horsemen of the apocalypse, who I was surprised to learn Jesus actually unlocks and brings the four horsemen into it. And they fight alongside with the angels. Yeah. They have to in,
1: break the, break the seven seals. Yeah. In,
0: in the book of revelations. I thought that, you know, that was something that I had not previously known, or if I had known, I had forgotten. I always associate the four horsemen of the apocalypse with demonic forces. Right. Yeah. Cause they're the four horsemen of the apocalypse, man. They're dicks. Nobody likes And they seem Nobody to represent them. evil things. But in fact, they are part of and fight with the side of good in revelations. Um, and revelations also ends with a battle. Thus the show is about the preparation for battle. My one main reflection on why the apocalypse, and I think trying to understand it from a contemporary perspective is both easy and hard. One, we have some genuine threats hanging and looming over us that could potentially have apocalyptic ramifications. The first is nuclear war. Yeah. We've created enough weapons with enough power, firepower, that it could, in theory, destroy every single living human being on the planet and fundamentally alter the ecology of this planet for permanently. That it may not be, you know, life may not be able to sustain on it or the life that can sustain on it would be so radically different from the life we have, we wouldn't even be able to understand it. So there's that threat. Then the other main threat that we're seeing is from, you know, global warming and global climate change.
1: Oh, I thought you were going to say Thanos.
0: And Thanos. I mean, come on. (laughs) Obviously. Yeah. The rise of Thanos. No, but from global warming. Yeah. You know, the fact that the climate is changing and some theorists are out there predicting that we may not be able to have food in the next 150 years. Right. Because the climate could change and it could get so hot that we won't be able to feed ourselves and that could potentially lead to the collapse of human civilization and the end of life on earth as we know it. So we have these tangible real anxieties and threats that it's one filter to say, why apocalypse? Well, we're living under the shadow of it and it feels like we're up against the precipice of it. But I think if we back up because there wasn't, you know, nuclear war back in ancient Assyria There wasn't global climate change to the ancient Hindu. These are modern threats, and apocalypse and the narratives and structures around the apocalypse predate our current problems. So why the apocalypse? Why the apocalyptic narrative? I have a theory, and it's relatively untested, but it takes us back to understanding mythopoetic thinking. Now, we've talked about this on the podcast before. Mythopoetic thinking is generally considered pre-logical thinking. So before people had universities that could teach us units of knowledge, before there was a scientific method that we used to understand natural phenomenon and, can and, pre- cause and, effect. and yeah. could predict natural ph- phenomenon based upon the observations, before we had these very powerful systems we have now, Humanity had a problem, which was how do we pass on what we have learned from one generation to another while simultaneously explaining why the world works and the world working from the flood of the Nile, why that happens to why there's a king and you're not the king. These are things that people need to know. And the mythopoetic thinking was the answer that describes the world in non-logical terms, in mythological terms and poetic terms. So there are songs, poems that you use, that people memorize, that they sing to pass from one generation to the other. And there are myths that explain natural phenomenon and how they predict natural phenomenon. Ancient people were fucking smart. They were really smart. They, yeah. built, they built some of the structures that are still some They're of still the greatest standing. structures yeah. ever built in the history of humanity. So that's from the pyramids to the Great Wall of China. These are amazing human accomplishments. They were smart, and they understood patterns. They recognized and saw patterns in the world. These patterns were generally described in mythological terms, but it was everything from understanding the seasons to the stars. They saw these patterns everywhere, and they did not see themselves divorced from the patterns. Humanity was part of the pattern. If that pattern were to fundamentally alter, life on Earth could fundamentally alter. Specifically, we'll go back to ancient Egypt because it's the easiest to understand. The Nile flooded seasonally. When it flooded, it would then retreat and it would leave rich deposits of mineral soil, which the Egyptians could then grow. Their life was based around the flood of the Nile and then feeding themselves based upon that. Then they would have half a year where everyone farmed. The other half of the year, everyone monumentalized. They built palaces and temples and pyramids and all the cool shit we know today. That pattern was very important to the ancient Egyptians. Should that pattern get disrupted, their entire way of life would be disrupted. So how did they preserve that in a mythopoetic sense? They sacrificed to the gods that made that pattern happen. But they were smart enough and understood that should the gods or whatever force governs the flood of the Nile change— so would their way of life, it would be over. And they were smart enough to realize that not every pattern is permanent. Hence, you get the idea that once we do something or something happens that changes this regular pattern, we're gonna have famine, we'll have war, we'll have all of the negative consequences. And since they weren't divorced as individuals or as a society from these patterns, they're like, how can we ensure these patterns keep going? We pray we worship, our, uh, we worship um, Osiris, we'll make sure we bury the dead with dignity, we will make sure that we preserve the patterns in our life, because our lives are linked to the patterns of the cosmos.
1: I'm listening to this with a little bit of envy and a little bit of sadness, because although we have made so many great advancements in logic and reasoning and science and understanding of the world around us, it seems like we've grown a distance from our uh, role within the natural world. And so while I listen to you talk about how ancient people felt that they had as much of an effect on the patterns of the natural world as individuals, as any great uh, supernatural force, I think that we, uh, moving forward, have have distanced ourselves from that responsibility and have stopped seeing ourselves as links in that chain. And so there is something interesting Mm. about Uh, modern apocalypse narratives that remove like human responsibility from it or from our daily lives that removes us from feeling the responsibility for ecological disaster or uh, climate change or things of that nature. And seeing good omens unfold, it absolutely emphasizes the power and the importance of individual will in uh, averting and in changing the necessary conditions to uh, to avoid the war, to avoid the apocalypse. But it makes me yearn for that kind of mythopoetic thinking that sees uh, all of us as important links in the chain that lead to the conditions that end the world.
0: Well, that's cool. I want to just urge caution. Yeah. It is best to not romanticize.
1: No, of course. You know,
0: because romanticizing it, I mean, these are people that fundamentally, they worship the sun. Absolutely. As a God, right? Something that's patently not true. And while they saw themselves, and I think you're correct that the contemporary view uh, about humanity and its relation to nature very much stems from the idea that humanity is separate or above or not connected. And I do fundamentally think that 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 is not a good way to look at the world, but we should look at ourselves as part of it. I don't necessarily think we should revert back to being mythopoetic.
1: Absolutely not. It's that's just a or harsh
0: world. Yeah, <laughs>
1: it's just something that I was thinking about as you were explaining that. I was like, "Yeah, we reflection. should start to re- remember that we are part of this same system, and every action that we take uh, leads to uh, greater consequences."
0: Right, but I think that's where the mythological and religious roots of the apocalypse is. It, it roots itself in mythopoetic thinking that at some point there is some kind of a force, whether it is a God, multiple gods, uh, you know, a demon, something that could disrupt the patterns that are necessary to sustain life in the ancient world, because this would happen. Life is chaotic as much as they saw patterns. They also saw chaos. The gods could get mad and the earth could move and break apart, you know, like, and that's not something that they were able to understand or predict. And because of that, they saw and intuitively realized that things could radically change here. And if they do, life could be really hard, if not impossible. I think that's the root of why apocalypse. And I think we carry that with us today. Um, You know, I think now we see instead of, hey, let's have reverence for these patterns in the natural world and link them to our religious rituals. Now, I think we have... Created our own version of that in, you know, man-made catas- potential catastrophes.
1: And it's telling that the uh, th- the apparatus of Armageddon, the uh, the tool that the armies of good and evil plan to use to enact the end of the world, is nuclear war. Uh, is a man-made uh, evil that they are planning to detonate towards each other. Uh, in order to end civilization. So I think that's very telling, that it's that kind of pattern that they fall into. Um, Using this to kind of pivot into uh, another aspect of the show and of the narrative of Good Omens, uh, I I thank you so much for that analysis. I think that is really helpful in understanding the groundwork that is laid for uh, creating a story about the end of the world. But I think we also have to... uh, understand and uh, interrogate the philosophies that are at play within good omens.
0: Let's do it. Awesome. I love me some philosophy. You
1: sure do. And I think a lot of them go hand in hand with uh, those ideas of the apocalypse. So if we're talking about uh, understanding patterns of the natural world and ascribing sort of divine uh, foreknowledge to them or ascribing, uh, you know, a a God who moves the dial, who is the one who, floods the Nile or who is the one who makes sure that, you know, we don't all get swept up in a great flood that is worldwide, uh, then we have to look to some of the great philosophical and theological questions that are being asked within good omens and that are asked among religious people and non-religious people like every single day. And those are the questions of the problem of evil and the uh, the paradox of free will. So we started this podcast by saying, that this is a, a show that affirms free will. And I think that overall it does, but I, I think it does so with a healthy amount of ambiguity, because, like we said, there is uh an extraordinary uh prophet who can see things ahead of time that are so specific they must be true prophecy. And because we have an Almighty who is Uh, dictating to us what is going to happen and saying that she plays an ineffable game of cards that no one else can understand. We know that there is an ineffable plan. And yet, we are on the ground with the players who are in the dark room, who have no idea what the dealer is doing. Uh, So I think there is a lot to explore in terms of those philosophies.
0: Yeah, let's do it.
1: So let's get started with the problem of foreknowledge and free will. This is a philosophical and theological dilemma that describes the sort of perceived incompatibility of free will, our ability to determine our own actions and our our own universe with an omniscient or infallible God. So uh, the problem of foreknowledge and free will says that you cannot have free will and an omniscient, uh, omnipotent, and omnibenevolent uh, divine creator.
0: Correct. Because those would be mutually exclusive. Right. If I know everything that's going to happen before it happens, how could I also ha- have choice in that because it's been predetermined?
1: Absolutely. So there are a number of responses to this uh, because this poses such a problem for both philosophers and followers of uh, of any religion that observes an omnipotent God Uh, There are a number of responses to this, known as theodicies, uh, that explain not only why uh, is there this tension between free will and divine foreknowledge, but also why is there evil? The problem of evil is a a huge question, especially in Christianity. If God knows everything that is going to happen, if God is all-powerful, and if God is all good, then why do bad things happen? Why is there evil? And we don't have time to go through every theodicy tonight, because there are So, so many of them, but a, a quick summary of some of the big ones are to say that, uh, there is a soul making, uh, theodicy that says that evil is put on this planet in order to test us, in order to form us and in order to build, uh, the kind of character that we need to either qualify to go to, uh, the afterlife, uh, to heaven or to hell. And Thomas Aquinas, uh, who we've talked about before, a medieval philosopher and cleric, uh, was a big proponent of the afterlife theodicy that says that uh, there's evil in the world, so that uh, in the short time that we are on Earth, we can form and uh, you know understand and overcome the necessary obstacles that we need to become someone worthy of the afterlife. Um, but these aren't always completely satisfying, and so one of the uh, one of the most, one of the best known theodicies is the free will defense that says that there is evil in the world because God tried to maximize the amount of good in the universe by giving all of his or her creations uh, free will, the ability to determine their own actions. And so this created a necessary amount of evil because in order to say that a person is good, they have to have had another choice. In order to say that a person is free, they had to have been able to do something else in that situation. And this also brings about the idea of moral responsibility. We can only be morally responsible for our actions uh, if we have the freedom to make another choice in that situation. And our boy Thomas Aquinas, again, said that we needed this idea of free will. He defended this because without it, then there is no purpose of sin. There's no reason we need to talk about sin in church if we were already determined to make every choice that we make by some greater force or by some deterministic universe.
0: I'm totally picking up what you're putting down here. Absolutely. Yeah.
1: And uh, this feeds into the Enlightenment, of course. And I want to talk just briefly about a uh, philosophy known as tabula rasa, Uh, And this is a a philosophy, it means uh, in Latin, blank slate. So this was, uh, we can trace this all the way back to Aristotle in his Discourses on the Soul. But this is an epistemological theory that is uh, opposed to innateism, And it says that the human mind does not possess any knowledge or any predisposition when it comes into existence. Innatism, on the other side, would say that the human mind possesses innate knowledge or inherent knowledge or predisposition. So proponents of tabula rasa tend to come down on the side of nurture in the nature versus nurture debate. So while I say the earliest roots are in Aristotle, we can also track it through the early Stoic school, and then it becomes uh, best known in the theories of John Locke, who is the father of liberalism. He's an enlightenment philosopher who is an empiricist, Uh, who basically says that every knowledge, everything that we know, comes from sensory experience.
0: John Locke is also the intellectual forefather of America. He wrote that the function of the state is to preserve three things, life, Life, liberty, liberty, and and property, and the pursuit of property, which was adopted by Thomas Jefferson, but he changed property to the pursuit of happiness.
1: Absolutely. Absolutely. Which is Um, why they call him the father of liberalism.
0: Absolutely. So John Locke is one of the most influential philosophers in human history. Anyone who says philosophy doesn't matter, we can always go, "Ah, ah, ah, ah. John Locke invented freedom as we know it. (laughs) So it definitely matters.
1: Absolutely. So he's often compared to another enlightenment philosopher, uh, Thomas Hobbes, who believed that individuals do have innate mental content and that human nature is inherently selfish and self-interested. John Locke didn't think so. He thought we were born a blank slate. And this meant that through our experience, through our actions, through our choices, and through our circumstances, and all the things that form us, we are the authors of our own souls. We are not inherently good, we are not inherently evil, and our fates are not sealed at birth. So to put this in the terms of good omens, most of the things that happen in the universe don't happen because people are fundamentally good or fundamentally evil, but because they are fundamentally people. And I think uh, this idea of tabula rasa is at the core, uh, maybe not if of the entire Good Omens universe, but of Crowley and Aziraphale, who are the emotional heart of the story. Both of them believe because they have been on the ground for so long with humanity, that there is at least a chance when you put the prince of darkness, the adversary and the destroyer of Kings as a baby on this planet, that there is a chance to steer him in a different direction than what's been laid out for him by prophecy than what's been laid out for him by uh, scripture and these 6,000 years of forming this world.
0: Yeah. And ultimately I think they're proved correct because though they mistake the baby warlock for the antichrist, they try to uh influence and cancel out both the demonic and angelic forces by giving him equal amounts of advice they even say, "Oh he won't be good he won't be evil he'll just be a person yeah it turns he'll just out be normal it turns out all they needed was Adam to be raised by normal people yeah for him to just grow up and become a normal person
1: right and for him to be raised by uh by a father, for him to have a, a mother and a father in the room who both uh offer attention and who both uh you know are, are giving of love. Uh I, I think there's a, a beautiful um sort of rhyme happening between the pilot and the final episode where uh Adam's father is told to leave the room while Deirdre his mother is in uh, is in labor. Uh, and he's very uncomfortable being asked to leave the room, but he finally does come in to see his baby and wants to be there. And Adam confronting his true father, uh, the dark lord Satan, uh, and saying, you're not my dad. Dads don't show up on your 11th birthday and pretend everything's okay. Uh, your dad's supposed to be there. So I think there is a uh, a recognition that uh, that humanity, that being around people who love you, Uh, is much more important in forming the person that you are than whatever uh, genetic determinism or uh, religious determinism is kind of stamped upon you at birth.
0: Totally. I don't think... I will say this about the problem of free will as it relates to the philosophies of the Good Omen show. The problem of free will is one of the central reasons I'm not religious. Because I do... Feel innately. And I also think it plays out philosophically that humans are free. And I don't think that jives with an all-knowing, all-powerful deity. I think that there there is a deep contradiction there, a bridge that I can't philosophically build that prevents me from ever joining the religious fold. And I think the one thing that the show does philosophically unwell and that doesn't mean that I am I think the show's bad at all. In fact, I adore the show 100%. It leans really heavily on the philosophy of God being ineffable. Here we have angels and demons who have been in the presence of the masters of the universe of God and Satan that have foreknowledge, that have the ability to change matter by their will, that are... Or taught and told by this deity that they need to play out a particular battle. And that's part of the divine plan. And they were wrong, right? It's not part of the divine plan. And the reason we know it's not part of the divine plan is because God, as the narrator of the show says in the beginning, I don't play dice with the universe. This is, there are no accidents. Everything is predetermined. And how do we reconcile free will? Eh, it's too big for you to know. And I do think that is a philosophical cop-out and I do think it's like, well, yeah, well, yeah, of course there's God. Of course God's real. And of course you have free will. And of course it's predetermined. Oh, you don't like it. It's too big for you to understand. I'm like, ah, I kind of wish it took a stand somewhere in there.
1: So I appreciate that, but I don't, I don't agree. Uh, Please tell me why. I think that, uh, like like I've said before, there is a decent amount of ambiguity about the determinism of this universe versus uh, people and and non-people, angels and demons' ability to forge their own fate. Uh, And I don't think it's a philosophical misstep for ineffability and the ineffable plan uh, to live side by side with people at least believing that they have made their own choices. Because the people that we are following the closest are Crowley, Aziraphale, and to a certain extent, Newton Pulsifer, the witch finder uh, private, and anathema device. And then Great names, by the way. Yeah, of course, the, uh, the them, Adam and his friends. Uh, all of them are in some way uh, knowledgeable of a greater plan, whether that is uh, the Almighty's ineffable plan for the universe or the great plan for Armageddon or Agnes Nutter's prophecies or that your parents tell you you need to be in bed by nine o'clock. All of them are conscious of this greater plan by greater beings, and yet all of them are, uh, at least to their own perception, internally motivated by a desire to not let the universe end and have the best summer of their lives. Like they are all motivated by a love of humanity, by a love of each other, by a love of their friends and their families. And so at the end of the day, I think, although the almighty figure, the voice of God and Francis McDormand saying, uh, you know, I I, I play this ineffable game and everything is predetermined. There is this hard deterministic universe the people that are most important to making this happen are not living by, are not going by what they think the plan is supposed to be. They're going by what they feel is right. So I think there is a, uh, a tolerance of the ambiguity and a tolerance of the tension between a deterministic universe and the idea of free will. That's just how I feel. You know, that's
0: fair. I feel
1: like it just affirms like you, you, you do what you think is right. And it doesn't matter if it's determined by
0: a greater plan. Okay, so that's a different argument. And that's a very valid argument. That reminds me of Jean-Paul Sartre. When asked, do you believe in God? He said, it doesn't matter. Right. Because we're free, whether there is a God or isn't a God. Our choices are our own. If God existed, it changes nothing about the human condition. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that is a totally valid argument. But... If these characters are free to make their own choices, then God is not all-knowable. Right? Cuz if I'm like if God knows every choice I'm going to make before I make them, then I haven't made any choices. God made them for me. Right. Right? And right. if there is a divine plan to have a battle to end the world to finally defeat evil, and that plan gets thwarted by the friendship of an angel and a demon, uh, God's not all knowing, not all knowing, right? Like clearly, God didn't know everything. They even make lots of playful jabs about how much mismanagement there is on both the demonic and angelic yeah, forces. Yeah, it's a
1: bureaucracy and on they, both sides. They've which got is to write part of memos, the comedy, yeah, and
0: they've got it like, and which is hysterically funny, but it certainly doesn't give you the sense to me that there is an ineffable, you know, plan here. Okay. Right. Like it gives me the sense that it's really just a bunch of angels and demons trying to do the best with what they can.
1: And being kind of only human in how they do about 75% of their jobs and then spend the rest of the time on Facebook.
0: And that God is divorced from all things, right? Like, so like if God is a major factor in the universe, creating events, free will is a really difficult circle to square.
1: Absolutely. Which is why there are so many competing uh, philosophies that try to explain and justify this.
0: The easier example, if there is a God is that God is not all knowing and set the universe in motion and then right.
1: pieced out. Yeah. As a, as a watchmaker,
0: you know, like, and said, all right, I set these conditions. Let's see how it goes. I'll check back in 10 million years and, you know, see, see how everything is operating and, uh, Yep, I gave these these things freedom, and this is what they did with it. Okay, cool.
1: Yeah. The other conclusion that you can draw from the end of Good Omens is that uh, Crowley and Aziraphale becoming best friends and thwarting uh, Armageddon was the ineffable plan all along. Uh, that there was always a plan for Aziraphale to give away his burning sword, because he was that guy. He was always that guy.
0: Then they're not free.
1: Then they're not free.
0: They but, didn't make a choice. It was the plan.
1: But I think that is uh, th- that is affirmed by uh, the Agnes Nutter storyline, by right. the Anathema Device storyline, where she has the prophecies in her hands. She knows that these prophecies are accurate. They are true, that Agnes Nutter can tell her how the world goes until its very end, and then its restart, and then how Ye Saga continues. And yet, she says you know what? I would rather at least feel like I am making my own choices and not have the plan in front of me. If I keep it ineffable, then I am free. It may just be an illusion, but I am free.
0: Mm, That's a good point. And
1: that's how I feel about what this is saying philosophically.
0: I do think it does. Like I said in the beginning, the major themes are friendship and choice. Absolutely. And I think it does come squarely in that the divine plan is for people to be free. Yeah. Even the angels and the demons yeah. to be free.
1: And I, I like to think That's about very this good too, uh, with, with the powers that Crowley and Aziraphale have, they uh, they have tons of self-control over the fact that they can just make miracles happen whenever, even Crowley is. Uh, but when we think about uh, Crowley coming into contact with his demon friends, Haster, and uh, I forget the other one, Uh, who he's speaking to at the beginning and they're comparing uh, their notes on the day's evils And the other two are like, I tempted a priest, I made him look at a pretty girl, or I made a law enforcement officer accept a bribe and we're going to have their souls. That's very much the two of them being like, we can change this person's decisions and we can make this person think and feel a certain way. And Crowley's way of exerting evil and disseminating evil into the universe is to bring down mobile phones in London for half an hour so that low-grade evil just spreads out as people get frustrated for half an hour and take it out on each other. So even Crowley, is so much more, uh, well, part of that is that he loves humanity and doesn't want to like directly harm someone. He's like, it's actually more effective if I give people the opportunity and they choose to make some evil for themselves. Get up there and make some trouble, if you will.
0: Yeah, I totally see where you're going with that. Counterpoint to it is that if Crowley ends the cellular network for 30 minutes and that inspires people to do evil which gets more souls for yeah. satan those people didn't really choose did they well that's, they were influenced you know like the that's world-
1: what determinism is everything is cause and effect everything is these external forces weighing upon you and your your actions are caused by events in the past
0: you know, I think at the end of the day though, you're ultimately right. The show is saying that these things exist side by side. Is that it is a predetermined universe set by God who made a plan and that plan is precise and it will always play out the way it needs to play out. While at the same time, it's it's like it's like we're playing World of Warcraft. Yeah. Right? So the war, the rules of World of Warcraft are set and predetermined. The the, it has a certain narrative flow to it. I've never played the game, but I understand how it is. You join into this world. You are bound by the rules of that world. But what you do with your own individual character is totally up to you.
1: Mm -hmm.
0: And I think what it's saying is, is that it's very much like that. We're playing in God's video game and we are individual characters in the video game. And we can choose what we want to do with certain aspects. Other aspects of it we can't do. Because those are the rules that God set. And the game will ultimately get to the conclusion at the end. It'll get to its finale, no matter how we play the game or what we do. That's the end outcome. But along the way, we get to do pretty much whatever the fuck we want to do.
1: Yeah, absolutely.
0: I think that's really where the show is coming down. I do think they could. I I just wish that they would have let it be a little less ineffable at some point. Like, so I want to ask myself, like what did Gabriel and Beelzebub learn? Nothing. Right. What did at the end of the day, did Crowley change? No. Aziraphale does. He's willing to kill someone. Like he kills a soldier potentially. He doesn't know. He just sends a random soldier doing his job somewhere, and he hopes they're still alive.
1: I will tell you in the novel that's explained, and he's fine. Oh, okay. Yeah.
0: But, I mean, in the context of the show, let's understand it that he uses his magical power to harm another person. Right. Well, and he's
1: ready to kill Adam. He's ready to kill a child.
0: He almost does kill Adam. Yeah. He almost does kill a child. So Aziraphel really does change and really does grow and um, really, I think, settles into free will like – He's like, I can't do this because I'm an angel. I can't do this because I'm an angel. I'm trying to save the world, so I have to do what I have to do. Yeah, Crowley doesn't change much. Gabriel and Beelzebub are like, all right, we'll, we'll admit that we don't know the end game, but we still won our war. You know, like, we're still disappointed. Like, they, they haven't really grown much. Okay. And, and I think if we had a little clue, a little less inevitableness, it would have been potential, like. I, I sound very critical of the show and I'm not because I fucking adore it. I think I said that twice already. Yeah, But I do wish that it came down really solidly on the side of either free will or determinism. And I felt like it straddled the middle ground, which was the point.
1: Yeah, which which I personally really appreciate and really like. But right. I, I think that's very fair. And that just speaks again to like our different ways of of perceiving art.
0: Yeah. And I think I'm bringing in a little bit of a bias because I fundamentally, like I'm an existentialist. I staunchly believe our choices are our own. Right. And I wanted it to really confirm that. Yeah. And it didn't it kind of did while saying there's still a divine plan. Yeah,
1: And I'm an absurdist. So I'm like, whatever, let's just roll that boulder up the hill again.
0: You're like, uh, yeah, climb,
1: may- climb every mountain.
0: I'll make some joy out of this suffering. Yeah. All right, Nothing yeah. means everything and everything means nothing, but nothing is everything. And everything is great. Absolutely.
1: Um, to, to kind of wrap up into some final thoughts here, I've really enjoyed this conversation. I think uh, this show is just ripe for uh, explorations of philosophy and of mythology and of history and of the context that surrounds the stories that we tell and why we tell them. I started this podcast by saying this was the apocalypse that we needed. And I, I generally think that's true, uh, to have a story that is fundamentally optimistic about human nature and that ends where it begins, in a garden is really beautiful and really special. Because as we know from the book of Genesis, it begins with two people in a garden that is perfect. Uh, There is innocence, they know nothing of good and evil, and Eve eats an apple, and she learns what's good and what's evil. And then she gives that to her husband. And because of that, we have sushi. Because of that, we have dancing. Because of that, we have Amazon Prime. Because of that, we have uh, computers. For good or for evil, for better or for worse, we have the world. And I think that uh, for a show to affirm that that is special, that there isn't something so wrong about knowing what's good and evil. There isn't something so wrong about enjoying the world that you're in and uh, living in it. And reading rare books or driving a, uh, a historic and beautiful car, uh, I think is very important. And I want to just leave us with some thoughts from the final lines of the book because, and, and the show, because we end, of course, in a garden with Adam having chosen to reboot the world and not come into his power and not truly be the Antichrist. He decides to leave the garden to hang out with his friends because there's never going to be another summer like this. And he grabs an apple from his neighbor's tree, even though he's not supposed to. And he thinks to himself, there never was an apple, in Adam's opinion, that wasn't worth the trouble you got into for eating it.
0: I've got one final thought, and I thought that was beautiful. And it might be a little bit of a boomerang here at Go the very bitter it, end, but I think it's worth bringing up. I think this show confirms a major philosophical truth queen is the greatest band of all time
1: queen is the greatest
0: of all time they are the, the
1: champions
0: even the demons love queen
1: well as you know if you have a cassette tape and you leave it in your car for more than two weeks any tape will just transform magically into the best of queen
0: and until next time guys be kind be kind